Welcome to the One Crossing Podcast. Here you can find past sermons along with other exclusive content. Our prayer is that God will move in your life even when you are on the go. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning, Crossing Church. How are you doing today? Doing good? I am doing good because I'm with you. We get to be together and the Lord is with us and we're with him. And there just can't be much better than that. And I want to welcome all the campuses joining from all over this region, everyone that's inside, everyone that's online. Every week, right after service, I get an update uh, from uh, the campus pastors of what's been going on at their locations, how, how many were at their services, how many baptisms. And it's been like 15 years since we didn't have a baptism on the on the weekend. And I'm watching the numbers come in and uh, there's there's no baptisms until we get to Mount Sterling. Mount Sterling, you had a baptism. And you kept the street going, 15 year street. And then uh, of course, then uh, crossing inside blew them all away because they had six more. But uh, yeah, praising God for that. What I really love about that is uh, what we experience when we see those baptisms is transformation. You're just watching it on the face of a person that just transformation and only Jesus Christ can do that. And so we we're transformed and then we start a process of being conformed, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He starts molding us and, and shaping us and changing us day after day. And we become less like ourselves and more like him. And that's always a good trade, isn't it? And that's really the essence of what it means to be in an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's the series that we're in right now. And it's really the core of what we believe at the crossing. It's our mission statement, having an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you, there's a difference between an acquaintance and a relationship. Now, a lot of people try to sell you something else, like they'll name drop. Have you ever been around people that name drop, uh, like, like, they, like they have a relationship when they really don't have a relationship, but they make you kind of think that? Or people that read books uh, from other people and, and they feel like they're really connected to them because they read their book. You know, that doesn't really mean that you're in a relationship. It's hard to be in a relationship with a lot of people. I'll go to other locations, you know, and people will come up and share their testimony with me and it's so awesome but it, you know being in a relationship across an entire region with everyone that's that's not really necessarily possible and so it's easy for us maybe to be a little cynical when it comes to people and do you really have that relationship are you really in that relationship but the but the king of all of those stories for me happened in 2008 I took a church group to Greece and we were uh, do, walking the steps of Paul, the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And we had a, a tour guide, a uh, Greek tour guide, you'll figure that out. His name was Costa Colizaris. And uh, Costa was an interesting dude. I mean, he's talking, and it wasn't any time before he starts dropping names. And this guy is dropping like big names, like four American presidents. Like, I know these are presidents. And I'm like, come on, man. And he keeps going and he has all these names and just one after another after another. And he finally lost me when he said Jackie Onassis. I'm like, you do not. I did, but I didn't. I just kept it to myself because I wanted a good tour guide. And he was a good tour guide. 
And uh, one of the places we were going to visit uh, was Mycenae, Greece. And for those of you that have done some world history, you might recall that name, Mycenae, Greece, because that figures into the story of Helen of Troy and the Trojan horse and King Agamemnon and Menelaus and, all, you know, Achilles and all that. Those stories came out of Mycenae, Greece. And, uh, uh, and he was talking about Mycenae like he, he actually said, our family owns Mycenae, Greece. I'm like, come on, really? And so he picked it the last day on our tour, we were going to go to Mycenae. And it was interesting because when we got there, everybody knew Costa. Like they were like patting him on the back and how you doing, Costa? I'm like, hmm, that's kind of interesting. And after we were done with the tour of all of the ancient stuff, he said, I'm going to take you to our restaurant, our restaurant. And we come up on this place and it's palatial. It's like these marble verandas and big, huge pillars. And, and, and on the side of it, it says Colazaris Restaurant. And, and the tables have linen and china. And on each table, there's a bottle of wine and it's Colazaris wine, like his label. But the kicker was when I went inside the restaurant on the wall, there are all these photographs on the wall and it's Costa with four American presidents and Jackie Onassis and everybody else. Like the guy wasn't posing at all. Like he had actually done that. He'd been in those relationships, right? Well, a real relationship has that. It has this mutual aspect to it, right? And when you are in a relationship that has that mutual aspect, there's expectations, right? There's expectations that come with that because it kind of goes both ways. And when those expectations change, well, then you have to do a DTR. You have to define the relationship. And I'm sure many of you have gotten to those places like maybe in romantic relationships where are we moving at the same speed? Are we wanting the same things at the same times? right? And that's where difficulties happen in relationships. Like I can remember from like counseling, when those expectations change, that's where friction happens, pinch points happen. It may be like, well, we give, we, we as a spouse might feel slighted because maybe the children are getting more attention than we think they ought to get because we're losing it. Or maybe there's a blended family involved and how do we discipline in that? Cause that changes things. Or maybe it's a job and how we relate to that new job, or maybe it requires travel and you're not used to having that distance between you. Or maybe there's money issues, right? Either more or less. And there's lifestyle changes that come with that change in income, or maybe it's parents, you know, grandparents. And as soon as you start having children, then the grandparents start encroaching and, and you can have issues there. Or it could be religion where one person actually gets a lot more serious than the other one, or it could be politics. I mean, it could be a lot of things, but in the end, what do we have to do? Well, that relationship means that you're going to have to redefine things, understand expectations, right? Now, that may be the reality. I think you all connect with that, that that's the reality in our horizontal relationships. But what about the vertical one? What about the relationship that we have with God? How would you describe 
that relationship. And I wonder if we were honest, all of our locations, if maybe a more accurate description would be acquaintance rather than a real relationship. You know, there are some religions that actually keep us away from relationship. And, and it comes from this idea that we're just not worthy. We have no right to approach God. And so we have these rites and rituals, but we have no relationship. Like there's a distance that's baked into it. But is that what God really wants? As I read God's word, what I find is that God has always pursued a relationship with us. And that relationship is based on a mutual understanding. Now, a mutual understanding defined in God's word, there's a word that the Bible uses. And this is and the word is covenant. How many of you heard of the word covenant before? Yeah, that's the word the Bible uses to define what the, what the expectations are in a relationship with God. And there's a whole lot of them in the Bible. Uh, last week, we actually talked about one. We talked about the two trees in the Garden of Eden, and God said, of all the trees you may freely eat, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day you eat of that, you will surely die. That's a covenant relationship. You do this, and this will happen, but if you do this, then this will happen, right? We've talked about Passover before, the 10th final plague that came on Egypt and it was the death of the firstborn, and there was a lamb that was slain, and its blood was placed on the doorposts and the lentils of houses. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's covenant. So there are a lot of those covenants in the Bible, but there are five major ones. And theologians generally agree there are just five big major covenants. And I want to go through those five covenants to help us to understand our intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and I want to bring it all together, okay? So the first one recorded in the Bible, that's this major one, is the flood covenant. And I want you to notice how many times God uses the word covenant. I'm going to read a pretty large portion of Scripture from Genesis chapter 9, and just think about how many times he says this. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and a rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant 
I have established between me and all life on the earth. Wow, he said that a lot of times, didn't he? Now, I want you to notice something about this covenant. It's an unconditional covenant. What does that mean? It means that God is actually making this covenant with himself. So it really doesn't matter what you do or what you don't do. God has promised himself that he will no longer destroy this world by means of a flood. There's no requirement for Noah or anyone after him to do anything with regards to this covenant. And up to this point, I think we can all attest to the fact that we're here, that covenant has been kept. Now, covenants oftentimes have a sign that go with them, a reminder of the promise. And this time, that was a rainbow. So that's the first one. Second big covenant in the Bible is the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, he promised Abraham a number of things. He said he would make his name great. He said that he would bless people who blessed him and curse them that cursed him. He said that he would make him a great nation. He described it as like sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. His descendants would be like that. And he also said, in your seed, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now he's been telling uh, Abraham that for a while, but Abraham still doesn't have a child. And he's starting to wonder, God, are you going to keep your promise to me? So what God does is he cuts a covenant with Abraham. You notice I use the word cuts a covenant because in this covenant, the sign is actually the sacrifice. When a promise is made or a covenant is made, the sign is like what you're swearing on. It's like I'm promising on this basis. So like, you know, people, when they come up in a courtroom, they put their hand on a Bible. I swear to tell the right, so help me God. Or a person that is like taking an oath of office, they put their hand on a Bible. It's like based on my belief in God's word, I'm, I'm promising. Well, the sacrifice was the way at that time you actually approach God. So the, so the sign of the covenant is powerful. If you base it on the sacrifice, you're saying, if I don't keep my word, then I, I'm giving up my ability to approach God. So how was a covenant cut? Well, between two people, a covenant was cut in the sacrifice if they did this. They would actually dig a little trench in the ground. It might be six, ten feet wide. And then they would take a sacrifice and kill it and allow its blood to drain in the center of that trench. They would cut the sacrifice in half, put it on either side of the trench and light it on fire. Then the people that are making the promise to each other would stand on the opposite sides of the trench. Are you following me? And then they would repeat their promise to each other, looking at each other in the face, and they would begin walking in the trench. And not only walking in the trench, but actually walking in the blood of the sacrifice, passing through the sacrifice. They would pass each other in the trench, they would come to the other side, turn around, and face each other again. And what they were saying is, based on this sacrifice and the blood of the sacrifice, I'll keep my promise. It was called cutting a covenant. So here's Abraham. He's trying to believe God, but it's hard because he's not seeing any fruit of that. 
And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take these different animals. I want you to cut them in half. I want you to place them on either side of a trench, light them on fire. The blood was going to drain in that trench because I'm going to cut a covenant with you, Abraham. There was a physical way, a tangible, visual way for Abraham to know that God would keep his promise. But interestingly, when the time came, Abraham was not allowed to walk through it. Abraham was not allowed to face God and walk through. It was not transactional. As a matter of fact, God told Abraham to step aside and he went through by himself. The Bible said he looked like a smoking furnace as he went through. And do you know what he's saying to Abraham? Regardless of what you do, just like in the flood covenant, I'm making a promise with myself. I want you to know that I'm going to keep my promise to you, Abraham. I'm going to make your descendants like this. I'm going to make your name great. And the truth is, he did all that he said he was going to do. And of course, the greatest part of that covenant for us is in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that was Jesus and now Jesus is the sacrifice that's cut that we pass through. Pretty amazing in Genesis 15. Go to the book of Exodus in chapter 24 and you read about the Mosaic Covenant. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the commandments, the Ten Commandments, right? And, and that's kind of, you know, the Bill of Rights of the, of the Mosaic Law. But the whole Mosaic Law was a covenant between the nation of Israel and God. We read about it in Exodus 24. It says, When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Then Moses wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, that's Sinai, and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood, and he put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. He took the book of the covenant, there's that word, and read it to the people, and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Well, now this covenant's different than the first two because it is conditional. This is the law that defined the relationship that God's people would have with him. This is the Jewish law, and it's a covenant law between God and the Jews. We are not the children, unless you're Jewish, we are not the children of that covenant. But we do understand that it reveals God's righteous expectations. And unlike the first two, this one is conditional. You had to keep the law in order to receive the blessings that come from it. And if you didn't keep the law, you would receive the punishments that were attached to it. The fourth of these covenants, major covenants in the Bible, is the covenant God made with King David. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And God promised that he would establish David's throne his kingly line forever. That's a big promise, forever. Now, there were conditions that went along with this covenant, but not with the ultimate result of it. 
Now, David's kingdom, as David would have understood it, or human beings would understand it, lasted about 400 years, but then it was irrevocably violated. You can read that in God's word. But God did, in fact, keep his promise of an everlasting throne. He did that through Jesus, because Jesus is a direct descendant of David through both uh, Joseph and Mary. And you can read that in Matthew 1 or Luke 3 in those genealogies. That's four of the five major covenants, but it's the fifth one that makes all the difference. Okay, and that covenant is called the new covenant. Now, the new covenant is something we actually celebrate every week. The sign of the covenant is something you participate in every week. You may not know that you're participating in the sign of a covenant, but you actually are. We read about this in Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 and 28. Jesus then took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do you remember that Jesus, when he was teaching us, told us they did not come to abolish the law and the prophets? He came to fulfill them. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. And he's the ultimate fulfillment of not just one covenant, but all of them. He's the ultimate fulfillment that humanity will not be destroyed. And that's why we talk about salvation. In fact, God will redeem humanity and restore us to the place that we lost in creation. Because he even fulfills the covenant of the two trees in the garden. Jesus is the covenant that was cut in blood that we pass through in order to receive our forgiveness of sins and the promises of God. He himself is the sacrifice. It's his blood that we walk through. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law of sin and death. You know, that's what the Mosaic law was called in Romans 8, 1 and 2. And what the Apostle Paul says is the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. He has replaced it. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to provide a king to rule all over his people forever, an everlasting throne, because he is the descendant of David, and he does sit on an eternal throne. Covenants are no longer enforced when they're fulfilled, and Jesus has fulfilled them all. That's what makes the new covenant so special, but it is also conditional. The new covenant is a conditional covenant. It requires something, and you know what it is? Oh, sure you do. It's an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, what are the expectations that God puts into that relationship to him? Because that's what I want to know. Like, okay, if we're going to be in this relationship... I see what you've done. What am I supposed to do? Understand that it begins in an unconditional way. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, in Romans 5, 8, it says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous 
person, though for a good person, might someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, he did. I love the story of Jesus meeting Nicodemus at night because Nicodemus is trying to puff Jesus up and, you know, say nice compliments. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus, this Pharisee from the Sanhedrin, and he says this. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Just throws Nicodemus totally off. What? How can I enter into my mother's womb and be born a second time? He was very literal about it. And Jesus said, you must be born of water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you must be born again. I love the metaphor because it so clearly illustrates expectations in a relationship. Now, a number of you at all of our locations are parents. And if you ever had a baby in the house and you're the parent, you are in a relationship, right? What are the expectations of the parent and what are the expectations of the baby? Well, you know, the baby has zero and the parent has 100%, right? Because children can't do that. That's why I love the fact that Jesus instructs us that we have to be born again. That means when we first come into a relationship with Jesus, what are his expectations of us? He puts it all on himself because he's the parent and we're the baby. But it would be a travesty if our babies stayed babies. We want them to grow up. We want them to mature. We want them to learn and experience and grow. We want all of that, right? And so as the relationship changes, expectations change. So it begins unconditionally, but it moves toward conditions. And it does that because our understanding between God and us, Jesus and us, it grows and it becomes more seamless. And we begin to understand more about the richness of the relationship. And that's a beautiful thing. Now, that's not to say that we're riding a Christian pogo stick. And if we just do the wrong thing, then we're out. It's not like heaven, heaven, hell, heaven, hell. It's not that. Because we're in a relationship. You don't judge your marriage on how many good things or bad things you did today because you're in a relationship. And it goes deeper than that, right? It's, it's deeper than just a set of rules or, a, you know, and sometimes you have to redefine it, but you're in that relationship. Now, here's the problem. There's some of us, many of us, that want to keep this relationship superficial, more of an acquaintance, we want to be able to drop God's name or drop Jesus's name, but not really be in relationship. And I have to tell you, that is nothing like the real thing. He wants you to have the real thing. He wants you to enjoy what it means to be in an intimate, personal relationship with him. Before I ever came uh, to Quincy, and I was at the in that little church in West Central Indiana, I love to restore cars. I've been restoring cars since I was 15. I guess that's what happens when 
you know, you grew up in Speedway, Indiana. You're a Speedway spark plug. That's what I was. So, so you know, you know I, I've, I've done that all my life. And I was actually restoring a very rare Corvair. It was a turbocharged Corvair, 66 convertible. And I needed a, an engine for it. And I was looking in a magazine, found this engine, and it was in South Carolina, long way from Indiana. I called the person and uh, made arrangements to buy this engine, drive down there, pick it up, and drive back. Now, this person from South Carolina had the, what you might expect, the southern draw of someone from South Carolina. And I mean, it was a draw. So I'm talking to him, and he's like, well, yeah, I'm just really glad you're coming down here, and we're going to, and it's like, you know. And he goes, why don't you just stay at my house? I'm like, there's no way I'm going to stay at this guy's house. Because I'm thinking, like, yeah, he's in some backwoodsy area, you know, and he's going to let me sleep on the, kick the dog off the porch so I can sleep on the porch. There's no thank you. So I'm trying to be courteous, but... Uh, you know, but I'm, I'm, I already ha I have developed an opinion based on the accent of a guy, which is like totally awful. So he had some other parts. He sent me a, a, a letter that had a list of all the other parts he had for sale. And at the, at the top of the letter, it said, Dr. James Chisman. So he was just Jim Chisman on the phone, but he was Dr. James. I thought, Dr. James Chisman. And then I called to make arrangements. And uh, his wife answered the phone, and I go, is Jim available? And she said, no, he's teaching at the university. So he's the chair of engineering at Clemson University. So I didn't misjudge this guy. I, like, seriously misjudge this guy. So I talked to his wife. I said, I'd love to stay at your house. So terrible. I know it's terrible. I know it's terrible. <laughs> So I stayed at his house, and I remember going through the gates of his estate, passing the tennis courts and the swimming pool, and then he had five cars he'd restored from the year of his birth, you know. Uh, 1937 was the year of his birth, and he had a Rolls, and he had a Jaguar limousine, he had a Fiat a race car, and he, I was just nuts. And then every room in his house was restored to a particular period of time somewhere in the world, because he'd been all over the world. And he had priceless things in his house, in this palatial mansion. And the guy just knew everything. Guy was such ridiculous. Totally misjudged this guy. I went with a friend. He went on to bed. His wife went on to bed. And he knew that I was a pastor. And we were in his oval-shaped Library. It was like a library from Beauty and the Beast. You know, it was like it had those, those uh, ladders on rollers. And we're sitting there talking, and he was fascinating, fascinating person to talk to. And he goes, I have a question for you. And I went, okay. And he goes, so, you know, you're a pastor of a church, and I go with my wife. I'm pretty agnostic, but I go with her because she wants to go to church. And how do you really know that Jesus is the Son of God? How do you really know that he is everything he said he was? And I am messed up. Because I know this guy is a whole lot smarter than me. You know, he's probably looking at me going, you'd have to kick the dog off your porch. 
And I know that he has heard every apologetic argument you could make from God's word and, you know, every scripture. He knew all that stuff. This guy was way smarter than me. And while he's asking me this question, I am praying a prayer. And he's got his wingback chair right in front of a bunch of these books, you know, going way up high. And I'm sitting there staring at him. And while he's asking me that question, I look over his shoulder and there on the spine of one of the books, just over his shoulder are these two words, Marilyn Monroe. And God gave me the answer. And I looked at this guy and I go, you know how I know Jesus is the son of God? He goes, I'm, I'm all ears, Marilyn Monroe. And I had him. He was like, okay, Jerry, you're going to have to explain that one to me because I don't get that. And I go, I just happened to look and saw that book over your shoulder. And let me tell you something. I imagine that that's a biography that somebody who's really interested in Marilyn Monroe wrote that biography. I imagine there's a lot of stories in there and there's probably photographs in there and it's all kinds of stuff about her life. But if you really wanted to know Marilyn Monroe, you need to ask Joe DiMaggio because he was married to her. So he, know what, he knew what it was like when she walked into a room. He knew what it was like when she started to smile. He knew what it was like when her dress would brush up against him and the smell of her perfume. And I looked at Jim Chisman and I go, there's a big difference between knowing about someone and knowing them personally. And you're never gonna know, you're never gonna know that Jesus is the son of God until you know him personally, Jim. You can know all about him, but until you know him personally, you really don't know him. And he leaned back in his chair and sighed and he said, you know, I never thought about it that way before. I want you to think about it that way. You can know all about him, but do you know him personally? I do not want you, any of you, at any of our locations to leave where you are as an acquaintance to God or as an acquaintance to Jesus Christ, where you drop names and you act like a poser. What I want is for you to know what it means to be in an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, to know that when you pray, he hears you, to know that when you cry, he saves your tears, to know that when you feel like everything is coming apart, he's holding you together. When nobody else understands where you're coming from or where you're going, He's right there to know that he'll never leave you, never forsake you, that he knows everything about your life and loves you anyway. That's the Jesus I want you to know. And you're not going to know him until you know him intimately and personally. 
we're moving to a time of decision. Thank you for joining us. A special thank you to those of you that choose to give to this ministry. It's because of your generosity that this ministry is possible. You can click the link in the description to give now or visit thecrossing.net forward slash podcast for more information. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to subscribe and share with your friends, tagging One Crossing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.